welcome to Module 22 of Administrative Law. I'm Craig Forces. We have one last subject to address in this course, remedies. Now recall our seven steps to administrative law wisdom, and especially the four-question approach to the control of the exercise of delegated power. The last of the four questions is, what remedies are available? And we shall address this question in two modules. In this one, some of the considerations surrounding the award of administrative law remedies, and in the next one, the actual remedies themselves. Now recall in our discussion of the four-question approach, you need to make a distinction between a statutory right of appeal and judicial review. If there is a statutory right of appeal, then that's where you find your remedies. Put another way, the available remedies are simply those in the statute and nothing more and nothing less. And statutes vary in the remedies available. We can't generalize or say anything more for our purpose in this course. So let's move on and ask, what remedies are available on judicial review? Well, as I've alluded to on several occasions, as a general rule, the relief that can be granted by the courts on judicial review is quite limited. With very rare exceptions, the courts will not substitute their own decisions for that of the delegate. They will generally not strike down or quash the delegate's decision and replace it with their own. Instead, the most common remedy is to quash a decision and send it back. So expunge a decision and return to the decision maker. And this remedy is consistent with the classic prerogative writ of certiorari, which I'll come back to in the next module. There are, however, exceptions where the court may conclude that quashing and sending back is unnecessary and that the case may end on judicial review. And the Supreme Court in Vavilov canvassed circumstances where because of the nature of the issues before it, it would serve no purpose to quash and send back. There, in discussing substantive review, that is review on the merits, after a reasonableness assessment, it said that where a decision reviewed by applying the reasonableness standard cannot be upheld, it will most often be appropriate to remit the matter to the decision maker to have the decision maker reconsider the decision, this time with the benefit of the court's reasons. In reconsidering its decision, the decision maker may arrive at the same or a different outcome. But, said the Supreme Court, there are exceptions, and judicial review should not lead to an endless merry-go-round of judicial review followed by reconsideration by the decision maker. The Supreme Court said this, Declining to remit a matter to the decision-maker may be appropriate where it becomes evident to the court in the course of its review that a particular outcome is inevitable and that remitting the case would serve no useful purpose. Elements like concern for delay, fairness to the parties, urgency of providing a resolution to the dispute, the nature of a particular regulatory regime, whether the administrative decision-maker had a genuine opportunity to weigh in on the issue in question, cost to the parties, and the efficient use of public resources may also influence the exercise of a court's discretion to remit a matter, just as they may influence the exercise of its discretion to quash a decision that is flawed. And so all these variables can be examined for the purpose of deciding if there would be any point for a court to send the matter back to the original decision maker. And that outcome 
refusing to send back to the original decision maker, simply quashing the decision, allowing the relief that the individual wishes would be the ideal outcome for the applicant. The case ends at the court. There's no second round with the delegate. But it is also worth noting that courts have a discretion to decline any remedy to the applicant. That is, even in cases where there are good grounds for review, a court may decline to intervene on the applicant's behalf with the delegate's decision. On judicial review, there is no right to a remedy, even if all the necessary criteria are otherwise met. There are several considerations that, in fact, might lead a court to refuse a remedy. In other words, to simply reject the applicant's case. First, the application is premature. Generally, applications for judicial review filed before the delegate has completed its proceedings are dismissed as being premature. Courts want to see the completed decision. The delegate should be, to use the Latin expression, functus officio. It must have made a decision. It has fulfilled its statutory duty. It has no further ability to reconsider the case. That's what we mean by functus officio. It's done. It's finished. It's out of the mix. Premature applications are not encouraged because they have the effect of fragmenting and lengthening proceedings. And so generally courts will only intervene in extraordinary circumstances where the delegate has not completed its decision-making function. And so the sort of considerations that might motivate a court to intervene even in those circumstances before the final decision, hardship to the applicant, waste, in other words, why proceed with a failed administrative process when it's very clear at the outset that that administrative process will be quashed upon judicial review? Delay. The administrative process is stopped. That delay will impede the capacity of the administrative decision maker to complete their decision making process. That's the sort of consideration that counsels against offering judicial review on an incomplete decision. Concern about fragmentation. You could have multiple judicial review applications, one on some matter that arises at some point in the proceeding, and so you go right away to the court, and then one on the merits. Courts don't like that. Again, that may foil the decision maker's ability to perform their mandate. And so that, again, counsels against intervening on judicial review when the decision is not final. The strength of the case. Maybe it's a very compelling case. That would suggest that early intervention may be appropriate. And a final consideration I'll mention the statutory context. A court will not want a premature judicial review application that has the effect of stymieing legislative intent, standing in the way of what the legislature wished to accomplish with the statutory regime that they have stood up and in which they accord powers to a delegate to perform functions. So prematurity can stand in the way of judicial review. Now, one caveat here, if you're seeking a remedy like a prohibition or an injunction, Prematurity is not relevant because by definition with prohibition and injunctions, you are seeking to intervene before the completion of a decision. We'll come back to those remedies when we talk about remedies in the next module. Next in my list of reasons why a court may decline to intervene, even if grounds are available justifying that intervention, and it's a variant on this idea of prematurity, the availability of an alternate administrative remedy. Now, this is a big one. We've talked about this in the past. Judicial review is regarded as a last resort. If there is another way of challenging the decision, generally speaking, you're supposed to proceed with that 
alternative challenge before going up on judicial review. And the classic example of this is the existence of a statutory right of appeal, which we've mentioned repeatedly. And so if there is an unexhausted appeal route, say from a lower level administrative decision maker to a higher level administrative decision maker, well, you're supposed to exhaust that appeal route before you run to the courts on judicial review. Now, to be clear, that administrative appeal route needs to be adequate. And what does adequate mean? Well, the Supreme Court has said in Matsky that adequacy is measured by the convenience of that alternative remedy, the nature of the error being alleged. Specifically, is it one that you can appeal on to that administrative appeal body and the nature of the appellate body? And so to give you some examples of where the remedy system in some sort of administrative statutory appeal is not adequate, let's assume, for example, a hypothetical where the scope of the appeal available under the statutory regime is not sufficient to allow the appellate body to consider your complaint fully. And so, for example, the appeal is only available on the merits and there's no appeal on the procedure and your concern is one of procedural fairness. Well, obviously, that's not an adequate alternative remedy. You have no recourse to that administrative body for appeal purposes. You have no choice but to go to the court on judicial review. Or another example might be that while you would have standing on judicial review, you don't have standing in the statutory right of appeal. And so there, too, there's no plausible argument that the statutory right of appeal is adequate. But I want to caution you here. There is a predisposition amongst law students to assume that judicial review is the best possible recourse that you might want to exercise because you end up in front of a court. But the reality is that statutory rights of appeal from one level of administrative decision making to another often are much broader than whatever remedies are available on judicial review. And in fact, can get your client the objective they want much more readily. And so it's actually in your interest to proceed with a statutory right of appeal before jumping into judicial review. Okay, next, another reason why courts might turn you down on a remedy, even if grounds for review exist. Minor errors committed by the delegate. If the errors committed by the delegate were of a minor or technical nature and did not affect the outcome of the proceedings, well, a court may dismiss the application for judicial review and leave the delegate's decision in effect. Likewise, a related issue where a remedy would have no practical effect. If the applicant has demonstrated good grounds for review, but in the circumstances of the case, the remedy will not be of any assistance, the court may refuse that remedy. And so this might involve, for example, a mootness issue, that for some reason, whatever thing that the delegate was deciding on is now moot. The circumstances on the ground have changed in such a way that the decision could not be decided any differently, or the applicant themselves is no longer in a position to benefit from the decision of the delegate. Those sorts of considerations might deter a court from quashing a decision and sending it back. Next, the failure of a party to object promptly. Now, recall this is a big issue with bias. Where there's a reasonable apprehension of bias, you can't sit on your hands once you're aware of the facts giving rise to that apprehension of bias. You have to object promptly or you'll be deemed as having waived your concern about bias, acquiesced to the bias. You can't spring up on judicial review and ambush the decision maker. You have to instead raise the issue with the decision maker and, for example, ask them to recuse themselves from any further deliberations on the matter. There's also a further issue about delay. 
after the delegate's final decision, you should be relatively prompt in bringing your application for judicial review. At the federal level, this is a statutory requirement. Why? Because as you recall, there's a 30-day limitation period. You must bring your application for judicial review within 30 days, generally, after the decision has been communicated to you. But even in other circumstances, say at the provincial level, where there may not be as fixed uh, limitations period, you still want to act with reasonable rapidity to avoid the accusation that you acquiesced. And in assessing the reasonableness of any delay, a court may look at the hardship that would be suffered by the respondent, that is the government decision maker, were the court to allow the judicial review application to proceed to remedies. The last consideration that I'll raise in this podcast, a circumstance where the court may decline a remedy, is what I'll call simply the applicant is bad. They do not come to the court with clean hands. And so the applicant's conduct may cause them to be denied a remedy. For example, if the applicant was difficult or attempted to obstruct the delegate from doing its public duty, a court may overlook what would otherwise be a violation of procedural fairness. If the procedural fairness was in fact precipitated by the applicant's own conduct, well, it's hardly fair to turn around and award a remedy in the applicant's favor against the decision maker. Okay, so that's all I'm going to say about these sort of considerations that may motivate a court to exercise its discretion in not awarding a remedy. In the next module, we'll talk about the remedies themselves. Until then, this ends module 22.